0: Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to this uh, LSE Ideas event. Uh, My name is Professor Michael Cox. I'm one of the directors with Christopher Coker of uh, LSE Ideas, which is the school's foreign policy think tank and research center. Welcome to you all for coming along tonight. Uh, Firstly, a big vote of thanks to the Axon Johnson Foundation in Sweden, who have been generous enough, and may I say wise enough, to fund this particular lecture series. Uh, It's called the Engelsberg series, and and the Engelsberg chair tonight you'll meet in a moment is Michael Burley. I'd also like to welcome two guests here this evening, very special friends of ideas, Nikolai and Pamela Ratiu, who are in the audience, very nice to say hello to you, uh, who are working with us on our Southeast Asia program. And, of course, more important than anybody else is the speaker. Uh, Welcome to Michael Burley. Uh, Michael has a long, distinguished, and varied, and might I even say, an interesting career, which can't be said of most academics sometimes. Um, Michael, I won't say when he was born, but it was in the 20th century. Um, But Michael has published many, many books. Well, 20th century is good enough, I think, Michael. Uh, Seven books on Germany between 1984 and the year 2000. He has taught at many distinguished institutions, including the most distinguished of all, dare I say, the London School of Economics. He has also been a professor of history at Washington and Lee University in Virginia and at Stanford. He has given several distinguished lecture series, including the Cardinal Basil Hume Memorial Lectures, at Haythrop College, University of London. He's also done what many academics don't do, he's done a lot of television work and film work, for which he has received, I think, proper due praise, and I think all the work that he's done on that has actually been fantastic. Michael is on the advisory board of the magazine standpoint and has contributed regularly to to the public debate on many, many issues, including one of the issues which is confronting this country at the moment, the question of, of, uh, of Brexit. Uh, Michael is now our first uh, Engelsberg chair here at the LSE, in LSE Ideas, and already we've been privileged enough to hear his first lecture, and tonight we're going to welcome him to this wonderful titled lecture called Engeland I suppose I'm supposed to say it with a German accent, I'm not too sure, Rossier, which I'll say with a Russian accent, hyphenated phantom limb nations on the edges of Europe. Michael, welcome very much this evening, we look forward to what you have to say. Welcome to Michael Burley. Uh,
1: Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. I hope my my voice holds up for the next uh, 50 minutes. Um, Tonight's lecture title may evoke um, those sort of fanciful couplings favoured by literary critics, um, Shakespeare and Storm Z, or Pushkin and Pussy Riot. (laughs) I remember some polite scepticism from Mick Cox when I first broached Uh, this topic. So tonight I'm basically going to try and lower his eyebrow. (laughs) Um, I want to discuss some historical and psychological themes involving Britain and Russia. That means imperial Britain and Tsarist Russia, but also the Soviet Union, which stridently disclaimed being an empire at all. Instead, it embodied a universally transferable political ideology, good enough for Angolans, Ethiopians, or Germans. I'll begin with a brief outline of how these empires were formed before focusing on their dissolution. This also means touching on a revealing synagogue, namely the commonplace confusion of English and British, something which also still happens in the case of Russian and Soviet. An example of this confusion was a Daily Mail front page in February 2016, which demanded, echoing, uh, was he Arthur Green... 1939, Arthur, the Labour leader. Greenwood. Greenwood, thank you. Which demanded, who will speak for England? You had to work down the editorial inside to find the qualification uh, where it said, and of course, by England, we mean the whole of the United Kingdom. The original front page was expunged from the mail's separate uh, Scottish edition. (laughs) We're so used, rightly, to seeing imperialism in terms of dominance over others, which is not what I'm going to talk about tonight that we often forget that it invariably involves self-denial for the most dominant nationalities involved. Obvious asymmetries of scale meant that in both the British and the Russian empires, the dominant nationality had to practice self-abnegation towards the subordinate folk, regardless of what was said in private. That is the deeper meaning of the enthusiastic imperialist Rudyard Kipling's paradoxical question, and what should they know of England who only of England know? In Kipling's time, of course, England had become the world. <laughs> some have compared loss of empire to phantom limb syndrome—you know, where you think your foot's itching when it's been amputated. The amputation was relatively protracted and more sanguinary than some imagine in the British case, taking more than a quarter century in the tightest chronologies. The implosion of the former Soviet Union was very rapid, between 1989 and 1991 if we include the abandonment of foreign clients, such as Ethiopia's Mengistu, or the collapse of an outer empire which reached into Germany. Both defunct empires exhibit a worrying disregard for historically core neighboring states, in particular Ireland and Ukraine, which they continue to view in a quasi-imperial fashion. Putin frequently claims that the Ukrainian neighbors are, as he puts it, one and the same people as the Russians. Instead of armed lamb grabs, the British have recently indulged in casual anti-Irish chauvinism or calls for the Republic to follow Britain out of the EU so as to resolve or rectify some of the problems left by Cameron's referendum in 2016. In addition to exploring all that, I'll conclude with some remarks about the enduring temptations of an Anglosphere, which I'll explain, and Empire 2.0 during the Brexit era, and how this might impact adversely on the European Union, especially if an attenuated Great Britain undergoes a loss of esteem equivalent to Russia in the post-Soviet 1990s. One of the more distinguished <coughs> recent heads of the Secret Intelligence Service, <coughs> excuse me, John saws has said that the unmoored UK is destined to be a Tier 3 power, below the Tier 2 likes of the EU, India or Russia indeed, and the Tier 1 duo of the US and China. This may require mental adjustments, though I'm not not optimistic amidst so much boosterism and bullshit. This takes us back to Russia, which, like the UK, still retains its core settler empire, albeit on a much vaster scale. Nowadays, Russia is not lonesome, since its alliance with China is quickening. It amounts, in fact, to the belated realisation, you could say, of a Eurasian monolith... Which the former LSE director, Halford McKinder, who was LSE director from 1903 onwards, uh, could only dream of when he envisaged a giant continental Euroasiatic heartland with us on the maritime peripheries. Now, some people, especially in Eastern Europe, but also the Financial Times' um, great columnist, Gideon Rackman, fear an opportunistic pariah's combination resembling that of the Bolsheviks and the Weimar Republic in the era of Rapallo after 1922, should eight months of trade talks with the EU turn sour. So I hope this warrants an hour of your time, and I can already see Mick's eyebrows slightly relaxing. A rivalry with Russia (coughs) has always occluded what Britain and Russia share by way of historical experience. They have a deep common history as empires on Europe's peripheries, the former by insular necessity across the Atlantic, and then following uh, the American Revolution in South Asia and Africa. Um, The Muscovite Russian Empire was um, land-based, if we discount the Alaskan venture in the 1860s as being rather eccentric. Now, this map uh, shows the historical expansion of Muscovy in terms of uh, dark, the earliest bit, if you like, uh, to progressively lighter shaded areas, which are the, the latest additions. The Russian Empire was assembled by four successive imperial surges, the first big push over the Urals resulting from what you might call fur fever. This was akin to gold rushes elsewhere, as the quest for martin and sable pelts took Russian settlers into Siberia. Muscovy also struck out southeastwards, against the fractious carnates of the Mongol Golden Horde, which was the policy they had uh, in their far west, to whom Muscovy's rulers were tributaries for some centuries. Like many kingdoms and empires, including the English, the rulers of Muscovy made extravagant claims. Tsar Ivan IV, the Terrible, called himself Khan, as well as Tsar or Caesar uh, in English or Latin, uh, for he ruled many Muslim subjects the Roman origin double-headed eagle standard faced both east and west. Orthodox clerics supplied the useful conceit, the ecumenical conceit, that Moscow was the third Rome, the successor to Byzantine Constantinople, which in 1453 fell to the Ottoman Turks. Messianic religion, Protestant in our case, leads me to the briefest summary of English Empire. The first English empire was even more venerable um, than Muscovy's, except that after 1066, uh, England was a Norman French colony. Its prized crown and centralized tax yields were inherited in turn by the Angevin dynasty, that's the lot on the right. The ruling class had such classic English names as Dennis, Richard, Roger or William, except that these were all of course French. (laughs) England's gradually Anglicised ruling elites conquered Wales and Ireland and fought the French, who were first dubbed aliens, actually in Magna Carta in 1215, in a protracted Hundred Years' War, which only concluded in 1453. None of this has much to do with nationalism, unless you bend the term to be meaningless, for these aristocratic elites were thoroughly supranational in manner and culture, think Davos man in armour, if you like, (laughs) while the illiterate common folk, meaning 70% of men and 90% of women, even as late as 1642, were sub-national in loyalties. Forced out of France and royal by the Henrician Protestant Reformation, English claims to insular empire were formalised over Wales in 1536 and Ireland in 1542. Conquest was bolstered by assiduous cultivation of myths, about Great Britain as more than a geographical expression. Sir Walter Raleigh was among the first to imagine this on a global scale. <clears throat> Dynastic Union between England and Scotland in 1603 saw the adoption three, three years later of the Union Jack flag, Jack simply meaning James I or VI of Scotland as he was. And you can see Rubens's rendition of the event of this Union ...of the two kingdoms on the ceiling of the Banqueting Hall in Whitehall, part of which is what you're looking at. The female figure of Britannia, with a shield, made her appearance on coins in 1665. James Thompson's rousing rule song, as on the right, was written in 1740. But there was one major source of trouble for the future... Starting in the Tudor period, English and Scottish settlers were planted in Ireland, a process aggressively accelerated when under Oliver Cromwell, 40,000 more were added in the most gallicised part of Ireland in northerly Ulster. These new Irish settlers were militantly Protestant, surrounded as they were by people they regarded as barbarous and Catholic. Which brings us to Great Britain again. In 1707, a bankrupt Scotland was united with England in a customs union and single market with joint defence too. This afforded the Scots access to trade, not just with England, but throughout its American and Caribbean colonies. French Jacobin-inspired radicalism in Ireland was the main driver of the 1801 Act, creating the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. This was attenuated after partition in 1921 into and Northern Ireland, as it says on our passports, Once the Irish Free State (coughs) had achieved independence, incidentally a conscious option to become poorer, but prouder, and we've seen a lot of that recently. Union was fostered (coughs) by a common governing class – Wellington, Castlereagh and Palmerston were Irish – and by a labour movement whose heartlands were in Wales and Scotland. This reflected economic transformations in which discrete parts of Britain had first-mover advantages. The Industrial Revolution was as evident in Cardiff or Glasgow as Manchester or Bolton, and uh, that was one um, general buy-in to a relatively new British identity. Another was membership of a colonial elite, which ruled the gigantic jigsaw puzzle of global interest that became the British Overseas Empire. Being 124 times the size of the British Isles at its zenith, This offered limitless scope for ambitious or desperate people, for example, the mechanical and warlike Scots, as you might call them. (laughs) Between 1850 and 1939, a third of colonial governor-generals were Scots, with equally heavy representation in engineering, trade, finance, and the military. Tombs in the huge necropolis on a hill overlooking Glasgow from the west are a testament to the wealth they derived from empire, even if the Irish Catholics down below in the Gorbals had the lousiest living conditions in Europe. Thoroughly confusing English and British, the settler colonies and future white dominions were progressively viewed as England writ large, as if Australia was greater Essex, but this was an England not construed as a mere nation like Bulgaria, uh, Italy or Poland or Romania, but by race, a favourite word of the Victorians. Now, race was a literary and historical uh, term long before um, it became a scientizing one for most of the 19th century, signifying a providential mandate to spread law and Protestant civilization, akin roughly to the um, things that um, the ancient Romans would have believed they were doing. Faltering confidence in empire, <clears throat> especially during the Boer War, and the growth Uh, much earlier than that, of an assertive Celtic counter-nationalism in Ireland, led some to eagerly adopt a much more expansive supra-identity as Anglo-Saxons, a term used, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, much more frequently after 1840. You can see this nonsense illustrated in this 1849 juxtaposition of an Anglo-Saxon chief in 449 AD and a Victorian colonial official in a tropical setting. (laughs) <laughs> that was also the intention behind what Robert Young calls the systolic rhythm of Oxford's Rhodes Scholars, the elite within an elite race that also spanned the US, of course. Through America, England speaks to the world, as the liberal Charles Dilke optimistically put it. Mm. Now, though for a century England was the largest empire the world has seen, imperial Rome would have fitted quite snugly within modern Canada, the Tsarist Russian Empire was much larger and for a longer period, even though much of it was sparsely populated. It had both settler and military phases like other European empires. Siberia doubled up as a land of opportunity and a place to dump convicts. California crossed with Australia, so to speak. <laughs> Given the flat and open-ended geography of Russia, the expansion was driven by the need to fill potential vacuums before other powers did, did so too, as the British found also in in Africa, and both uh, great powers fought a sort of great game, as it's called, with each other in Afghanistan. There was little to choose between the mindsets of the top soldiers, as you'd expect. Deployment of the samovar and the scimitar, or schmoozing and killing if you don't want to be euphemistic, took the Russian Empire into the Caucasus, where considerable violence was used to repress Circassian and Chechen clans, and subsequently into Central Asia, where generals like Mikhail Skobolev had a brisk view of the natural order of things. He said, I hold it a principle that in Asia, the duration of peace is in direct proportion to the slaughter you inflict on your enemy. Strike hard and keep striking till resistance falls, then form ranks, cease slaughter, and be kind and humane to the prostrate foe. Skobalev differed very little from the British colonial administrator Lord Lugard on the right, who in 1890 said, and I quote, the native looks on it as a sacrilege to touch a sahib, the Arabic and Punjabi term for master, and also expects little short of death from the sahib if he should try conclusions, in other words, if he fights him. To this prestige, the white man owes his ascendancy, and it must at any price be maintained, just as one would with a brute beast. By the late 19th century, the Tsarist Empire extended to Vladivostok, ruler of the East, on the Pacific. It took the writer-physician Anton Chekhov three months to venture that far on a muddy road. His successors could reach it more quickly by the single-track Trans-Siberian Railway, which was finished in 1903. So was Russian imperial expansion. Now, although the British are convinced of their own superiority in all these things, we did it all rather better. In comparison, the Russians appear to advantage. The highest echelons of the Tsarist court, bureaucracy, and military abounded with foreigners, notably Baltic German aristocrats, including some 38% of the total in the case of the top civil service roles between 1700 and 1917 their resented ubiquity would be among the drivers of Pan-Slavism and Russian nationalism. Nothing in the British Empire either was akin to arrangements in Russia whereby animist, Buddhist or Muslim aristocrats could possess Christian serfs, a slightly improved form of slavery. When we look west rather than east, for Russia achieved suzerainty over Finland and part of Poland too, there is no British analogue to the mock Russian prayer O bestow upon our own people what you've already granted the Poles and the Finns, who had better, more constitutional arrangements. And finally, half of the deputies in the first Russian Duma in 1905 were not Russian, ethnic Russians at all, something inconceivable at Westminster at that date, despite the Irish and Scots MPs represented there, who were not natives, of course. Before and after World War I, both the British and Russian empires had to deal with a new climate, in which even the smallest peoples strove to realise their right to national self-determination. In Russia's case, that coincided with a catastrophic loss of large amounts of imperial territory to the Central Powers, to Germany, Austria, and uh, the Ottomans—sorry, uh, the Turks—after Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. <clears throat> the Bolshevik revolution was an avowedly anti-imperialist project except in an ideological sense. But the Soviet Union, as constituted in 1923, included a Russian republic which comprised 90% of its territory and 72% of the population. By 1927, 65% of Communist Party members were Russians. But though most all Union Soviet agencies, from the National Planning Agency, GOSPLAN, via the secret police, the NKVD, to the Red Army, had their headquarters in Russia... Paradoxically, Russia did not have a national capital, and the Russian Republic had no Communist Party until 1990. It remains today, of course, a systemic opposition party under Putin. For Russia's identity was subordinated to the world-transforming mission of the Bolsheviks, and within Soviet borders to the requirements of federalism and indigenization which resulted in at first eight major union republics and myriad autonomous regions for even the smallest nationalities. As Bukharin put it, as the former great power nation, we Russians should indulge the nationalist aspirations of the non-Russians and place ourselves in an unequal position in the sense of making still greater concessions to the national current. Only by such a policy, when we place ourselves artificially in a position lower in comparison with others, only by such a price can we purchase for ourselves the trust of the formerly oppressed nations. The effect has often been compared to a communal, typical Soviet communal apartment in which every nationality had its own room, but not the sovereignty which came from Russian occupation of the hallways, the kitchen, and the bathroom. But, of course, the Russians lacked a room of their own. Arguably, the only time this Red Empire operated as an emotional and functional whole, was during the Great Patriotic War after 1941, though one suspects Balts, Chechens, Crimean, Tartars and Volga Germans, all of whom were deported, would not agree, not to speak of Ukrainians whose homeland was turned into a charnel house, as Timothy Schneider powerfully argued in his book Bloodlands. Indigenization of the non in the non-Russian republics meant the dominance of a hybridized nomenclatura, the ruling class, which discriminated against Russians who, from the 1970s onwards, began reverse migration back into the Russian Republic, though 25 million of them would remain marooned, as it were, after 1991. Some Russians began to agree with the half-Ukrainian author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's 1974 letter to the Soviet Authorities, which deprecated the dominance of imperial over national interests, with the Russians invariably drawing the short straw as he saw it. As the Soviet Union spectacularly fell short of the goal of achieving communism by 1980 and the stagnation of the Brezhnev years set in like dry rot, so some Russians turned to their own heritage. According to the British historian of Russia, Geoffrey Hoskin, that meant civic groups dedicated to rescuing churches and monuments from ruination or environmentalists concerned with the fate of Lake Baikal and the stone pine forests of Siberia. Intellectuals began to interest themselves in a non-Marxist Russian tradition, above all, of course, in Dostoevsky, from whom they derived the idea of a Russian soul so capacious that it can include humanity as a whole. But regime attempts to instrumentalize Russian nationalism in the service of the Soviet Union even as far as licensing a liberal party, uh, Zhirinovsky's party, which is in fact, of course, uh, fascist, could not compete with Russian demands for democracy and sovereignty, whose populist tribune Boris Yeltsin became Russia's first democratically elected president in June 1991. Now, I want to turn from this stuff to the mechanics of imperial retreat a process which took two decades in the British case, excluding the 1997 retrocession of Hong Kong, compared with a couple of years for the Soviet Union to dissolve. The British Empire collapsed under the strains of the Second World War, as the cost of defending empire proved too much for Britain to bear. A major loss of face for the British occurred in East and South Asia after the Singapore garrison surrendered in 1942 to Japanese armies which propagated Asia for the Asians in the European colonies uh, they conquered. Even before the war was won, Britain was also reliant on the pawn shop. The main pawnbrokers were the anti-imperialist Americans Though Rooseveltian contempt for colonialism was tempered by the Cold War need to keep European colonial powers in the global business of combating communism. That's one theme of my uh, last but one book, Small Wars, Far Away Places. Don't worry, it's not on sale. I'm not plugging a book. Uh, Who was really in charge was made uh, crystal clear during the 1956 Suez Crisis, when Eisenhower pulled the plug on Stirling, or threatened to, and the Soviets threatened to drop nuclear bombs on London. Although the British fought rearguard counterinsurgency campaigns in Malaya and uh, Kenya, which I talk about a lot in the book, they maintained that they had an orderly design for departure from their colonies. Power would be sedately relinquished to indigenous moderate nationalists, like Hastings Bander or Jomo Kenyatta, who would rejoin a partnership of equals called the Commonwealth as a beacon of multiracial felicity, as in the case of an earlier Great Britain, the biggest buy-in to a Commonwealth was by the monarchy. The reality included botched Federalist schemes, like the 1953-62 Central African Federation, which just fell apart, and the serial atrocities which came to light from the suppression of the Mau Mau insurgency in Kenya. The Commonwealth was also riven with internal disputes between India and Pakistan, many stemming from panicky partition, and over apartheid South Africa, which Britain helped arm. Chronic financial strains led to the retreat from east of Suez by Wilson's Labour government in 1968, though the British elites retain to this day their close relationship with the deference-based despotisms of the Persian Gulf. Loss of empire, in turn, raised questions of national identity, notably among outside observers. Famously, in 1962, uh, the former U.S. Secretary of State, Dean Aitchison, told West Pointers, Britain has lost an empire and not yet found a role, to which an angry Harold Wilson replied that Aitchison had lost the State Department without finding a role either. Thanks to the golden afterglow of victory in 1945, And the illusion of playing sophisticated Greeks to crass Romans, crass American Romans, the British tended to regard immersion in Europe as an either-or option, whereas their no less imperial European partners, Belgium, France, the Netherlands among them, found membership of the EEC less fraught and in the French case easy to combine with a lingering quasi-colonial mission still going strong in the Sahel belt in North Africa. Although the issue of Europe has been the Bermuda Triangle for so many Conservative Prime Ministers, one shouldn't forget that Labour were usually the chief naysayers. I owe the following joke to Professor Vernon Bogdanor at King's College. In 1967, an ailing Clement Attlee made his final speech to a Labour committee opposed to Britain joining the community. He rose to his feet. The Common Market, the so-called Common Market of Six Nations know them all well. Very recently, this country spent a great deal of blood and treasure rescuing four of them from the other two, and then he sat down. <laughs> in 1983, Michael Foote's Labour Party, uh, which I'd forgotten, actually, ran on a manifesto urging withdrawal from the EEC without a referendum. The spirit of that lived on in Jeremy Corbyn's ambiguities during the last election. On the third attempt, Britain had joined the common market in '73 while hedging its bets through the two other circles of alleged influence, namely the Commonwealth and relations with the United States, which were so tight that de Gaulle had twice repulsed Britain as an Anglo-Saxon Trojan horse. EEC membership, 15 years after the creative, the creative start, meant an inability to shape the community's fundamental institutions. Swathes of the Tory right were unhappy about all this, for the ultimate horror for the British imperial ruling class was that Britain would become a sort of poor man's Sweden, as a governor of Aden put it in 1963. Speaking of Scandinavia, you'll recall the Danish politician who after the 2016 referendum remarked, there are two kinds of European nations, there are small nations and there are countries that have not yet realised they're small nations. (laughs) The speed with which the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 effectively back to the first iteration of empire, of settlement empire, can be grasped by something that happened to Dmitry Trenin, a very distinguished Russian foreign policy expert, when he turned up at Shanghai Airport in 2001. A Chinese airline assistant was perplexed by his passport still emblazoned with a hammer and sickle encircling the globe. She sought higher assistance, because this was confusing her, That authority explained, sorry, the lady's too young to remember the Soviet Union. (laughs) The Soviet vanishing was speedy. It commenced first in the Outer Empire with Lithuania, the first republic to succeed in March 1990, before the attritional struggle between Gorbachev and Yeltsin resulted in the Minsk Declaration in December (laughs) 1991 that the USSR, as a subject of international law and a geopolitical reality, has ceased to exist. The LSE's uh, former professor, Dominic Leaven, has invited us to imagine something similar happening to Britain during its imperial high summer in the 1930s, because an analogy would be anachronistic in the 1990s. Imagine this. Not only would the whole overseas empire have to break away in one fell swoop, but Scotland and Wales would secede if one imagines them as akin to Ukraine and Belarus, In other words, places which many obtuse English people, like obtuse Russians, do not regard as independent countries at all. Um, Actually, there's a very good book I read last year by Sergei Plochy, is it? On Ukraine Ukraine and Russian relations with Ukraine. Uh, Quite extraordinary, about the sort of cultural supremacy of of the Russians. I hadn't realized that Gogol, who was, I didn't realize he was a Ukrainian, but then had to write in Russian to be taken seriously. Uh, Both the monarchy and parliamentary government would be overthrown too, not forgetting an economic collapse worse than the 1930s depression in which oligarch crooks and gangsters thrived. By 1998, 35% of the Russian population were living below the poverty line. But compared with the disintegration of Western European empires, like those of the British, Dutch, French, and Portuguese, Russia's experience was relatively bloodless, if one accepts the 13 Lithuanians shot dead by Russian troops in January 1991, two wars fought domestically in Chechnya, which, of course, is part of the Russian Federation, and inter-ethnic conflicts in independent Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. The British, by contrast, fought dirty wars in Malaya and Kenya, as well as leaving sanguinary chaos in India and Palestine, while France's attempt to crush the FLN independence movement in Algeria, technically part of the French metropolis, resulted in one million dead. 25 million ethnic Russians may have been marooned in the 14 independent successor states, but excepting Ukraine since 2014, these have not occasioned the troubles associated with the white settlers' in Algeria, Rhodesia, South Africa, or Protestants in Northern Ireland, who at peace is still highly fragile too, of course. Now, loss of empire is partly a psychological affair, as we in Britain know only too well, especially if the once dominant element, be they English or Russian, finds themselves stripped of imperial purpose. Since empire is often a form of disguised outdoor relief, charity, as it were, for the upper classes think of the private school fees we pay, the taxpayers pay for senior diplomats and generals, it's unsurprising that the adjustment process is felt most difficult there. That was also the view of Colonel Vladimir Putin watching these events in a KGB substation in Dresden, who regarded the collapse of the Soviet Union as, as he put it, the greatest political, geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, though he didn't lament communism, and meant the suffering which the Russians underwent in its aftermath. Not to mention the humiliation inflicted on good old Boris by the bumptious Clinton in the 1990s. A poll in 2012 also showed that 44% of Russians thought their country should remain an empire. Now, both nations are fitfully engaged in rearranging their national identities, something only tangentially related to the profession of writing history. Putin is probably the world leader actually most versed in history, he reads a lot of it, as well as being an exponent of what you might euphemistically call the applied or useful version of it. Um, He's taken actually to extemporising with foreign leaders, with piles of archival documents which he has put out, and he goes through these documents for up to an hour explaining historical points, I'm going to come back to one in a minute. Um, He thinks, of course, that Russia's history and his own destiny are synonymous, but we should emphasize for the benefit of any Russians here that he is no more representative of 147 million Russians than Boris Johnson is of 65 million Brits. I mean, of course, the Johnson who once wrote of Africa, Uh, current object of Britain's trade solicitations in recent days, he said the problem is not that we were once in charge, but that we're not in charge any longer. Think about it. Now, Putin has been constructing a Russian identity from what one might call an historical property box updated for the postmodern age. He's very postmodern in many things he does. Since it cannot be exclusively Russian in an ethnic sense, because, for example, the ethnic Russian element in Ingushetia is only 0.9% of the population, to take one striking example. He's also periodically turned to a stream of Eurasian thought, a tradition uh, in uh, Russian thinking. This basically thrived among exiled white Russian counts who'd had to become taxi drivers in 1930s Paris, it involves, to put it very simply, what one might call discovering, rediscovering one's inner Mongol heritage, because, of course, the Mongols ruled a huge area that just didn't just include Russians. A subject, incidentally, dealt with in a very fine book uh, called Black Rain, White Snow. I'm bound to have got that wrong by the Financial Times' uh, journalist Charles Clover. Eurasianism suits Russian leadership, which feels antagonistic to the European Union's self-professed empire of virtue, even if the fruits of the Eurasian Customs Union have been extremely modest, compared with the quickening embrace of Xi Jinping and China through mega gas deals and joint military exercises. Speaking of gas, Putin has obliged Gazprom recently to subsidise a series of exhibitions uh, called Russia, My History, the brainchild of his Orthodox confessor, for smells and bells, religiosity is part of the regime too. This is part of a much larger drive for an official history. Now, there is very little serviceable in the Russian in the October Revolution. Certainly not what he regards as malign state destroyers like Lenin and Trotsky, or the weakling Tsar Nicholas II. Though some of the fiercer. Civil War white generals like Denikin and Kolshak have certainly attracted his admiration. The murderous Stalin can't be admired either, except where he becomes indistinguishable from the almost sacred Great Patriotic War, whose ending will be commemorated big time by the Russians this May. Quite rightly, since every Russian family was touched by its horrors, uh, including the President's own family in wartime Leningrad, where his older brother died. Now, much needs to be overlooked, notably the secret annexationist clauses in what he calls the strategically necessary 1939 Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, and in fact, um, recently, he's um, offering to release, because the Poles have kicked up a hell of a fuss about what he said about the Poles effectively appeasing Hitler... uh, and uh, Munich, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, He said he's going to release more and more World War II documents. And then quite separately, he told a group of Red Army veterans he met from World War II, uh, he said he'd like to stuff these documents down their filthy mouths, referring to the Poles. Because never forget, we all know that he was a KGB officer. What's less widely realized is that as a teenager, he was a sort of... Uh, bully and a thug, basically, a delinquent in the sort of Leningrad equivalent of projects. He, he prides himself on being a real tough guy. That's partly why he learned judo, of course, uh, his big enthusiasm. So, But if you suddenly notice these very sharp changes in tone and the coarseness of the language that he can quite quickly revert to. Now, that's uh, this stuff about World War Two. he's in a great spat with the polls about it at the moment, is revealing, since Putin has repeatedly dubbed the Forcible Expansion of Russian Power Across Eastern Europe a Mistake, according to my friend Robert Service, his latest biographer. Now, Putin's actual biggest hero is Peter Stolipin, the conservative reformer, assassinated in 1911, something Putin doesn't like, who tried to transform Russia through non-revolutionary means. Putin frequently paraphrases Stolipin's retort to liberals in parliament, you gentlemen are in need of great upheavals, We are in need of a great Russia. But Putin also admires the state-building... There he was, I forgot him. Putin also admires the state-building autocrats, Peter the Great, Alexander II, and above all, Alexander III, the Tsar from 1881 to 1894. In November 1917, Putin visited Crimea to unveil a huge bronze statue of Alexander III, the eighth of its kind that he's he's had commissioned, whose appeal may be summed up in the statement, and this is Alexander III, we can have no policy that is not purely Russian and national. That seems to mean creating and managing hybrid conflicts while deflecting the West with various kinds of subversion and re-engagement in the Middle East and Africa. These pyrotechnics, because that's what they are, are much easier than diversifying the Russian economy away from hydrocarbons, the major policy failure of 20 years in power, not to mention stagnant demographics and widespread poverty. Instead, nowadays, as we've seen, Putin is wrestling with what Russians call Problem 24, meaning the year 2024, his own bid to become a backseat driver like China's Deng Xiaoping or his Kazakh neighbour, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, um, who's just uh, slipped out of the presidency into a uh, president, head of the state council or something, but it basically means he's still in charge. One of the things he probably doesn't have to worry about, I mean Putin, unlike Mr Johnson, is the breakup of Russia itself, vast though it continues to be. England's post-imperial neurosis is of a different kind, for we are not a large country like Russia. The Blair government's resort to devolution in 1998 to head off demands for Scottish independence, which then had to be replicated in Wales and Northern Ireland, left the English feeling hard done by given that they themselves rejected English devolution or rather reduced it to a desiccated parliamentary procedural mechanism called EVIL, English laws," uh, English votes for English laws, um, it, this then took the form of rising anger and resentment to what they dubbed the totalitarian regime in Brussels. Some clever Brexiters even went so far as to identify the English, with the Irish Free States' wars to liberate itself from Great Britain, and that takes some mental twists, or with the liberal revolutions which broke out across Europe in 1848, and they claim that all these people like Salvini and Orban are these uh, like the 1848 revolutionaries, except, of course, they're all very self-consciously anti or they're highly illiberal, so there's a certain contradiction involved in that. Now, 62% of Scots and 56% of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain in the EU in 2016, while a majority in England and Wales opted to leave. This marked divergence, because we're going to omit London without England, as it's been called, has given a fillip to Scottish demands for a fresh independence referendum and for a border poll to unify Ireland, as mandated in the International Good Friday Agreement. In Scotland's case, this was because <clears throat> the difficulty, because of the difficulty of rejoining the EU as a new Scandi-style state, because, of course, the Belgians and the Spanish would heavily object, you know, because of Flanders or Catalonia. This was heavily propagated, you know, you're not going to get back in easily by the Unionist side before the 2014 Scottish referendum. A lower price of oil, a, higher fisc- a high fiscal deficit and therefore the conundrum of what currency to adopt in an independent Scotland have not vanished in the interim either. The English might want to say too, and polls of English Brexit opinion done by the universities of Cardiff and Edinburgh a few years ago show little enthusiasm for the precious union which politicians talk so unconvincingly about. Now I'll uh, substitute um, uh, the mountains of... uh, analysis about the English and Brexit with a single personal anecdote, which I find quite revealing. This might interest some of you. In 2009, an eminent former newspaper editor and his wife invited my wife and I um, to see Jeb Butterworth's neo-ruralist play Jerusalem. It's about a cussed lord of misrule, played by Mark Rylance, facing eviction um, whose caravan in a Wiltshire woods becomes a mecca for all kinds of people discontented with sundry things about modern bureaucratized life, including not being legally allowed to take drugs. Ten minutes in, because it's one of those situations, I'm not very a very theatrical type of person, I always watch the audience, uh, ten minutes in, our friend's wife whispered to my wife, I don't think I'm going to like this, because basically there's just a wall of bad language from the word go while her husband's face certified that this was not the Wiltshire countryside that that couple know and love. (laughs) It was downhill all the way after that. But, at the end, the massed Wiltshire poshos, the posh persons, who had block-booked the row of seats in front of us, and knew our hosts very well, rose shouting, ''Bravo!'' Now, I really wish I'd remembered that mesalliance of the rich and the disenfranchised when I was asked to pontificate about the likely outcome of the referendum in 2016, because affluent Dorset, Hampshire, or Wiltshire were just as pro-leave, you know, the Red Trouser Brigade, as it were, as the left-behinds on England's coasts or in the post-industrial north of England. Many of these people are bluffly patriotic, too, Indeed, a map of recruitment to the British Armed Forces would have been very useful to the Labour Party before the last election. (laughs) With um, withdrawal a done deal, future relationships are the next arduous phase of what will be a long divorce. Brexit has revived, if not ideas, of an Empire 2.0, for India might have something to say about that, then certainly a yearning for either a regression to the buccaneering England of yore, on the left, or an Anglosphere based on more or less exiguous ethnic and commercial ties with the US, the former white dominions, which of course have changed considerably, and India. On the right is an 1870 painting by Millet called The Boyhood of Raleigh, which captures the adventuring side of things so beloved of politicians like David okay. Davis in an era, of course, before piracy was internationally repressed by laws for which the British were often responsible. Then there are visions of a global Britain based on the supposed ties of kith and kin and or Edwardian efforts or neo-Edwardian efforts to combine imperial tariff preference or protectionism with domestic social reform. These are almost entirely elite ideological concerns because I don't think people voted for Brexit because of a sort of longing for empire. The progeny of glib young men and women who write newspaper columns and pamphlets or work in think tanks paid for by Brexit-supporting billionaires. There's a very good book you should read by Daniel Dresner called Ideas for Sale about think tanks and uh, the corruption of the writerly profession. In reality, as the economist Adam Posen points out, trade is largely a matter of gravity – Compared with a 450 million strong market on Britain's doorstep, UK trade with such small and distant economies as Australia or New Zealand is marginal. My friend Jeremy Warner over there, a very distinguished business journalist, will tell you I think 2% of our exports go to Australia and New Zealand. And Ireland alone accounts for more UK trade than the entire BRICS uh, block of Brazil, Russia, India and China put together. Divergence is also much harder to achieve than convergence, as any trade expert knows. Now, here, for this part, I rely on a UK trade envoy, Sir Ivan Rogers, a very distinguished fellow among others. One can devise as many fancy acronyms like CANZUK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, or add as many meaningless pluses to Canada, Norway, and so on as much as you like but the likely result is probably some version of the messy rolling arrangements which the EU27 have with Switzerland after instant fake populist acrimony over the emotional issue of fish probably breaks out this summer, fish, of course, being 0.12% of GDP in this country. Uh, Never mind things like uh, cinematic animation or the fashion industry. I'd love to know what the figures for those are. As for a US trade deal... If uh, Trump's renegotiated NAFTA 1.25, or he calls it UMSCAR, is a reliable guide, Trump will insert endless poison pills into any trade deal we do um, in order to inhibit what we can or cannot do with China, while insisting, of course, that we do lots of things via NATO in the Middle East, which he'd like to slough off onto us. So control, in the end, would probably end up resembling something akin to becoming Airstrip One to Trump's Oceana, as George Orwell uh, so brilliantly put it in his novel 1984, written in 1948. Moreover, should Brexit upset the uh, Good Friday Agreement in Ireland, 40 million Irish heritage Americans, most of whom actually work in the American National Security Structures, you know, not just policemen, but in the FBI, the CIA, and on and on and on, the State Department, they might cut up a bit rough, and certainly their powerful representatives in Congress will too, judging by what Nancy Pelosi told Ian Duncan Smith and the rest of the gang when she visited uh, Parliament last uh, year. In order to retard China, and it's quite deliberate, and the EU, moreover, Trump is busily wrecking the World Trade Organization, which is the allegedly no-fuss alternative which no-dealers think the UK can fall back on. By the time Trump's finished, it won't exist. I want to conclude with how these uh, two post-imperial states relate in the present. The relationship is not just chilly, it's more like uh, deep frozen, as Johnson reminded Putin of what you might call a curt wigging in Berlin at the weekend. Doubtless, a shiver of terror and fright went down Putin's spine. (laughs) Foreign policy supremos enjoin us to manage this relationship, a euphemism, of course, for not having a clue what to do. But I need, at this point, to go back a little into history. Now, Russophobia is a deep-seated fact of British history, as shown in a rather good book by um, a scholar called John Gleeson. It reflects the two empires' different political trajectories, as constitutional monarchy in one case and as an autocracy in the other, and strategic competition, first at the Turkish Straits and then in Afghanistan and Central Asia. British liberals, moreover, if not British Tories, who were quite all right with the autocracy, were great adopters of plucky little peoples too, from the Circassians, the Chechens, and the Poles in the 19th century, down to the Afghan Mujahideen in the 1980s. For, of course, this country is addicted to globalised moralising, even as it undergoes a nervous breakdown. Even the most privileged members of our society seem to be abandoning ship, by the way, for the normality of Canada. <laughs> After the failure to stymie uh, the Bolsheviks, Britain joined a wider struggle against comintern subversion, only paused for enthusiasm for the Red Army in 1941-45. Then it was back to the subversion again, the tedious, overwritten world of Burgess, Philby and Maclean, which seemed to tantalise Sunday newspapers. Nowadays, the doings of spies seem to dominate the relationship. In 2012, the FSB, Russia's domestic secret police, made much of the mystery fake rock, and there it is, discovered six years earlier in a Moscow park which SIS was using, the Russians alleged, to communicate with pro-democracy NGOs which Putin promptly banned. I mean, they caught the British red-handed. The 2006 Litvinenko and 2018 Skripal affairs are the most egregious examples of murderous Russian operations on British soil, to which one should probably add cyber interference in democratic politics and the extraordinary latitude extended to Russian oligarchs as media owners or donors to major political parties. I never quite understood, by the way, looking at the last election, why everybody's upset about the Russians. What about all the um, Australian political operatives that we seem to import before elections, like Crosby and Levito and all the rest of them? They're a sort of curious bunch, really. Aren't they foreigners interfering in our uh, democratic politics? Nobody seems to ever say that. (laughs) Uh, The spy stuff tantalizes newspapers in a way, this is quite an important point, that the informed verdicts of Secretary of State George Shultz and his Russian counterpart Edward Shevardnadze, his Georgian counterpart Shevardnadze, in the 1980s, talking about the CIA and the KGB do not... Because both men repeatedly said, if you read Robert Service's interesting book, The End of Communism, they both repeatedly said that, that both lots of spies were completely useless at analysis and prediction. Surely the bit of the job, actually, which really matters to their political masters. I would forbear to say anything about MI6. But what if Britain and Russia were to find a common cause in future? Uh, the Financial Times' is Gideon Rackman, a great friend of LSE Ideas, Um, senses trouble ahead for the two bad-boy neighbours of a strong and prosperous if challenged European Union. Britain and Russia do not share many values, allegedly, but as Ratman reminds us, there are also emotions and strategic interests involved. Russia regards the EU as almost as much of a threat as the US or NATO, with the added twist that the EU is the alleged source of the gay-roper moral turpitude of Conchita Wurst that Putin deplores. What might happen were Britain to suddenly undergo the fate of the Soviet Union, together with an analogous economic shock, should there be a no-deal Brexit in eight months' time? For the negotiating window is going to be from this March, mid-March, to October, the last date for ratification of any deal done by dozens of European parliaments, and actually regional ones too. Ratman writes, English nationalists would undoubtedly see the EU... As complicit in such malign events. Some critics already accuse Brussels of manufacturing artificial problems on the Irish border, unreasonably delaying a free trade deal and encouraging Scottish independence, to which one should add tabloid outrage about the EU uh, fostering a pro EU fifth column, uh, enemies of the people, so to speak. Should there be no deal, then such antagonism might grow, or rather could easily be manufactured especially if Trump once again shows that his word is never his bond. The fear is not that Johnson would combine with Putin against the EU, least of all in a war against liberal values, though many Brexit supporters enthusiastically welcome, and I've heard them and seen them do it, every advance by the neo-fascist AFD in Germany, by Orban in Hungary and Salvini in Italy. Yeah, they go, because they're anti-liberal. Not they're anti-the EU, they're anti-liberal. That's a new development. But, of course, this is all just to say that an angry England... It's a football charm, by the way, I was emulating... ...might act like Russia by becoming a perpetual nuisance on the wings... ...vis-a-vis the club it has flounced out of. And that would, of course, suit President Putin very well. Well, thank you so much for all your attention... I see Mick's eyebrow has only (laughs) slightly moved downwards by the end of it. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. That was uh, wonderful. My eyebrows are fine. Thank you for okay, good. for looking after them so well during your extraordinary lecture. I've never listened to such a serious lecture and laughed most of the way through. No, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. I, some of the Davos man in armour I picked up. I thought that was good. Um, let's get back to the United Kingdom present because we were talking. We've talked about this. We've written about this together on um, on the question of Ireland. And also on the question of Scotland and the link between the two. This is no insult to the Welsh. And I lived in Wales, by the way, for seven very happy years, and in Scotland for five, and in Ireland for 20. So I know about the national question. Um, but on the, on, the, on the question of Ireland, do you think that's a much more serious challenge in the end than the challenge that sc- Scotland would present? Or And how linked are they? And, 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 and is it going to be... You know, uh, the, the end of the union in, in every sense of the word. It may not happen in two years, three years, but the, yeah. the direction of history, to use that appalling yeah. phrase, yeah. is moving in a certain direction. And it, post-imperial means in the end post-United Kingdom because Great Britain, the United Kingdom, as my Welsh and Irish and Scottish friends pointed out to me, was itself an imperial and colonial project. Yeah. And so therefore, once you've lost the empire to court, yeah. Then the empire comes home to roost, and you see the disintegration of it at home as well. So we start with that small question, (laughs) and then move on to some others as well. Over to you, Michael, for, again, thanks
1: for a terrific lecture. Thank you. Uh, Really, thank you. Um, Well, I would say, first of all, that if you look at the uh, forthcoming Irish election on the 8th of February, which is... Where Varadkar, who's been in the Irish cabinet since 2011, is looking a bit tired yeah. and uh, faces a serious challenger, actually as well. Um, interestingly, reunification isn't really part of part of any campaign there, as far as I understand it at all. That it's really issues like um, you know the state of the health service, um, uh, other you know crime has recently flared up. Um, It's these sort of things which are, and of course, as everywhere else, the difficulty that young people have in affording somewhere to live, either renting it or buying it, those Mm. are the real issues in the election. Um, I'd say the the, the one difference between Scotland and Ireland, which is quite significant, is that the Scottish, uh, you know, the last referendum in 2014, it was said that there won't be another referendum in, in in a generation, which I understand to be 25 years, unless the material circumstances alter. Well, the Scots would say, you basically told us a load of lies in 2014 that we'd never get back into the EU, so we voted for the Union, but now you've taken us out of the EU, sort of dragged us out by our feet. That's a powerful argument. Um, So... You know, there are. Anyway, to come back to the point I was going to make about Ireland, that um, the Good Friday Agreement, interestingly, allows for a referendum on a border poll in Ireland every seven years. Mm. So you could actually, it wouldn't be something happening in 25 years. It could, if the numbers stacked up and the will was there, it could happen every seven years. Now, just to compare the two things, because this is something that probably most English people get bored by or they don't even bother to read about. (laughs) Uh, Fair enough. the cost of unification of Ireland, where social security payments, welfare are much higher than they are south of the border, partly because, of course, as I you know, saw in Belfast, you see one lovely leisure centre here staffed by ex-paramilitaries acting as swimming pool attendants. (laughs) And 100 yards away over there, behind the wall, there's exactly the same luxury (laughs) complex, and that must be costing somebody some hell of a load of money. But to be serious, Mm. um, it's worked out that every um, Irish person, it would cost them €2,000 a year basically, indefinitely, Mm. rather like the costs that the Germans, West Germans, faced when they absorbed East Germany. I mean, it was only last year they abolished a sort of formal solidarity tax. I mean, just last year, 2019. Um, The other big um, problem, apart from the cost, would be, of course, who in their right mind in the Republic would want to incorporate... uh, a unionist population, which includes angry, violent, uh, loyalist sectarians who, don't forget, in 1974, I think it was, started blowing up Dublin and shooting people. So does one really want them? And moreover, they seem to be sort of uh, dusting down the gun cabinet, even as I speak. So um, they're basically the people that nobody wants, to be brutally honest about it. The English can't stand them and want to get rid of them, and I doubt whether the Irish want them either. Uh, Moving on to Scotland, no offence to anybody, moving on to Scotland. um, I think the Protestants in Northern (laughs) Ireland understand that point very well. Well, I think they do get it. it Moving on to Scotland, um, a lot will depend on the Holyrood election in 2021, because if the SNP wipes out every other party and becomes really a you know, strong majority, then that does give Sturgeon and co. a very big moral case for saying, mm. well, actually, this is what people here want, and aren't you Democrats? But, again, it's a heart versus head issue, uh, because you know, the price of oil is not going to go up as far as I can see. Even when there's a geopolitical disaster in the Gulf, the price of oil just moves for 48 hours, and it mm. has gone steadily down from over $100 a barrel to 65 Scotland also, because of its big public sector and its high welfare education spending, runs a 7% budget deficit. And to join the euro, which is one option, you have to be running a 3% budget deficit, unless you're Greek and you leave out the defence budget when you submit the accounts. Um, So... um, the other alternative, which is to retain sterling, well, what sort of independence have you then got if the Bank of England and Westminster totally control your currency? You haven't got independence. So, um, you know, although, although um, uh, I can see a very strong sense in which the Scots feel betrayed by what Cameron did and uh, et cetera, et cetera, about, you know, lying basically about all this and some of the other mm. things that have been going on... Um, I think, you know, many Scots will ultimately decide these things by their heads. And in both cases, what I'm sort of saying is, yes, I do agree with you that the the trajectory of history, I think, will go that way, but that it's going to be several decades and you and I will probably be dead before it happens.
0: That's good. Worth looking forward to. Um, Okay. Well, thank you for that. I've got got to come back on that, which is very quickly. This is not a question, just a statement. yeah. Well, the vote for the referendum was not economically rational either, but people did it. And I wonder if you're being too economistic in terms of your analysis of what might happen in Scotland or in Ireland, because nationalism... Itself is not always economically rational and is not always shaped by economic calculation.
1: Just the thought. I'm just overcompensating because we're in the London School of Economics. No, you can do what you like. <laughs> but actually, and, and
0: political science. And political and, science. And, and yeah, well, let's that. not forget that. Let's not forget uh, and that. Psychology, and psychology. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So let's. I mean, yeah. I have been saying all along, yeah. actually, that I do think you know, emotions can, exactly. can trump these things quite easily. It's about how you feel about yourself. I and mean, I wasn't saying for a minute, no, by no, the way, that sure. Brexit um, reflects, you know, the. the Some man or woman up in Scunthorpe or Grimsby would love to bring back the British Empire. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's about the role of – I'm somebody who, probably like you, has spent 50 years of my life reading history books. So I have a pretty good grasp of history, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. But um, if I sort of lobotomized myself and imagined what my conception of history would be if I hadn't spent 50 years doing that (laughs) – God knows what would be in my head. It would be a bit of My Island Story, which I read when I was 10, like most English people of my age. It would be a bit of crap picked up on television, mostly about Nazis or Tudors, this sort of thing. And then endless war films for my generation, growing up in the uh, 50s and 60s. Yeah. And that would be like my mental map. I mean, God knows what these people oh, think. I, I really dread to think. <laughs> OK. Well, I mean, no. they have sirens, for God's sake, at the Brexit Party rallies, wartime sirens. Okay, well... Spitfires and... Spit fires and oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave the Nazis and Tudors to other tastes. Okay, uh, why don't we start picking up some questions. We've uh, we got a gentleman up here. He's got his hand up, up in the balcony. Do I have anybody down here? Do two or three. Uh, in three. In the, not in the lower ranks, but in, uh, down here in the hall. Oh, There's the a gentleman g- here. Yeah, 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 I will. I heard that. Uh, over here in the middle. Where are you? Are you microphone? Yeah. Can you come over here?
2: Should, should I? Please. Thank you. Should I? Okay. There you go. Yeah. Thank so, you. Should.
0: If you just hold on a second, I'll just get the mic to this gentleman here. And we'll, we'll take those two. You wait, and gentlemen gentleman up there,
2: please, sir. Thank you. Uh, to what extent do you think uh, the prevalence of monolingualism in the, in the general population among these two countries and the presence of, you know, uh, territories that is detached from the mainland, well, allegedly, such as the, the Kaliningrad or something for Russia and the existence of overseas territories like Cayman Islands and... Uh, Jersey even contribute to this uh, imperialism by the mind. Thank you. So the question—that's a question about the
0: language, English and Russian.
2: By, yeah, uh, monolingualism of the yeah, general population, okay, uh, creating some uh, kind of a virtual. Very
0: much, uh, gentleman down here, please, sir.
1: Yes, I don't know whether you think this is too far off the topic you've been discussing these things, but do, do you have a view that whether Putin is a a man into himself or whether he is at the end of the day a product of the Russian system? yeah that's a good Is says such a thing as an ism can I answer that one first do that one first yeah and then you don't mind I'm not no, going not to, to ignore me. you I'm going to come back to yeah. you up there I have to think about it a bit um well of course he's called himself that's the nickname of his inner entourage like himself's a bit angry that you've knocked off Boris Nemtsov um that's what he's known as Um, No, I think he's very much part of a product of that system. He grew up and consciously wanted to join an organization which he would see as the sword and shield of the party, the KGB. And, in fact, he walked into their offices and said, I want to join, when he was about 16, I think. And they said, no, 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 you're too young. Why don't you go away and study law? So, you know, he comes from a background where his grandfather was a cook for Lenin and Stalin and therefore must have been an NKVD officer because of poison risks. And then his father was in an NKVD paramilitary unit in World War II, which meant he must have shot down deserters and cowards. So this man is pretty much part of that. And then he belongs to an organization. There's a very good uh, Russian novel I read several years ago by Vladimir Sorokin called uh, The Prichniks which is about how these people see themselves as like a sort of monastic military order. You know, Mm. you've really joined... That's partly why they came after Litvinenko and Skripal. You've broken the code, Mm. so to speak. But, no, I think he's very much part of that. On the other hand, his main preoccupation, I mean, it's quite transparent from what's happened last week. Mm. I mean, look, just think about it. His official salary is, I think I had it in my last book, it's $127,500 a year. Now, any estimates of his personal wealth... Most of which is held in usufruct, to use an old fashioned legal term by oligarch cronies, is anywhere between 40 billion and 200 billion. 200 billion would make him richer than Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. Now, Putin clearly is going to find out that it took him 10 years, it's quite easy actually, to get from being a, a, an unemployed spy with a second-hand German fridge, which is all he had in 1990, to being <laughs> Russian president in 2000. <laughs> Um, but he's going to find it very difficult to get out of power, mm. and that's what I think he's, he's currently... Because, you know, he's got to make sure he doesn't end up in jail mm. facing charges on God knows what, you know, about how he got his money, how his two daughters, yes. adult daughters, got the money. You know, this is, a, this is a tricky thing. But, I mean, clearly, if you look at his uh, personal popularity ratings, and I know you can't, intru- can't entirely trust the polling because... You know, if you get a phone call saying, do you like the Russian president, what the hell are you going to say in Russia? <laughs> yeah, love him. Um, that's, that's you can't the trust the polling yeah. very much. But nonetheless, his popularity is, is relatively high. But then you've got to look at the demographics of it. But he's popular among old people until the pensions crisis recently. Um, he's popular in people in uniform. Uh, he's created his own nationalist clack of very young people, what well, I'm not sure about his standing within, you know, the baby boom, well, not just my generation, but the, the, the middling demographic people from 25 to my age. I'm not sure where his standing is there. And uh, so all, on all those grounds, yes, he sort of represents something. And I don't think one should laugh at him because... As I said, you know, Russia lost anywhere up to 20, 27 million people in World War II, which means everybody in the damn population knows about death and has memories of people and old photographs. And he taps into a lot of that, and then a lot of them are very religious people, for God's sake. And there's no getting away from it. I don't think we should ignore it. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to be a bit nuanced about him. Mm. Uh, Sorry. The other question, I haven't got a clue how to answer it. it I I really don't have a clue how to answer it. Um, Well, I think that that people who are comfortable being in foreign countries, I think also there's a very different – I mean, this sounds maybe controversial because, you know, I think 30% of people in London voted for Brexit, Mm -hmm. at least two lots of my neighbours – three, actually. Uh, uh, I think a lot of people in big cities feel automatically more at home when they walk off a plane in Shanghai than they do in Sheffield, put it that way. And I think, you know, that can explain why people act politically in certain ways. Mm. It's, it's less of an alien environment. And obviously, if you speak lots of languages and feel at home, although this wouldn't apply, I always remember Alan Sked, the founder of... UKIP, when (laughs) I was in the history department here, he founded it here. Mm. You know, he spoke about five or six languages, and yet he was a real dyed in the wood Eurosceptic. So I don't think the things sort of correlate. I I, I don't quite know how to answer you properly. Sorry, that's not a very good answer. Mm. Crap answer, in fact. It's not so bad. It's okay. It'll
0: do. do. Okay, we've got a question, a lady here in the middle, a woman here in the middle in black. Please just be a bit quicker with the mics. And there's a gentleman here who's got his hand up. You've got a mic. So one, two. So if you could... Hold on a minute. Just get the other mic across. One and then two. If you could hold on, sir. Yeah, please.
2: Um, In his latest book, Tom Holland talks about how religion has basically shaped the Western mind. Um, And I was wondering if that's kind of at odds with your kind of general thing about imperial psychology or if kind of maybe... Faith and imperialism can be reconciled in this sense.
0: Okay, general question about faith and imperialism. Faith, imperialism, yeah. Protestantism. A gentleman here, please, sir. Very I'd like to ask a question about the Muslim areas of what was the Soviet Union. They've given independence to the Muslim Kazakhstan, the biggest one, and the other, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan which are no longer now Russian. They are reviving their own traditions. That has taken a much of territory out of Russia, which means not as powerful as it was, and I don't think it's only a threat to Europe. I don't think it probably was, and it's no longer. So I, I'd like you to, if you could say a few words about the implications of um, giving independence to the Muslim areas of what was the Soviet Union, and its relation with these areas. Terrorism, too. Okay. Well, no,
1: can I just answer that, that one quickly? You want to go 2-1? Okay, fine. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, no, no I, go ahead. Um, it's okay. Well, I would say the big, the big concerns in that relationship are not so much um, about Islam, that actually with the states in Central Asia, if I was them, I'd be very worried about um, what China's doing in their uh, vicinity and dependence on... Uh, economic dependence and debt from China. So actually many of those states would probably see dealing with Russia as a sort of hedging strategy vis-a-vis China. That would be my understanding of it. I mean, the only place where, um, and again, you know, somewhere where Islam actually plays a part in stabilising part of Russia is actually Chechnya, where his um, human pit bull, Ramzan Kadyrov, you know, if you want someone knocked off, I suspect he goes to that address, first of all. That's deeply defamatory. Um, but, um, but I suspect that, you know, he's somebody who's built one of the biggest mosques in the world now in Grozny, which they've shelled out fortunes on. And, and he uses Islam and the Islamic nature of the Chechen uh, Republic, which he rules with an iron fist. Um, he uses that to stabilize it, and as far as Putin's concerned, that's fine because it keeps a lid on Chechnya so you know I don't think, think um, that's a particular problem
0: um, Putin did use the whole question of terrorism coming from Dagestan, Chechnya there's even yeah he did. Strong, well, a strong argument that the blowing up of one of the Moscow apartments may have actually been you know an yeah, well, job in be, order yeah. to generate a, a kind of a, a war on terror mentality, which he then deployed yeah. Yeah. in terms of consolidating
1: his own power. Well, no, it was very useful to him being in power in the first place. That it was a, a very useful yeah. war after the botched first war in Once. Chechnya. He he yeah. won it. I mean, I'm not I'm Brutally, uncertain yeah. actually, having read a hell of a lot about the apartment mm. block bombings, whether whether they yeah, did no. yeah. whether they did do it. I just I, I genuinely don't know, but. Um, I mean, the thing I find interesting, actually, there's one thing which I thought was quite revealing about um, Putin, that there was a, before he became uh, president, there was a sort of poll done in Russia, an interesting poll, where they asked ordinary Russians, they said, which character in a fictional film or TV thing would you most like to see as your president? And they all took part in this thing. Now, there'd been a series on Russian TV a bit before that about some wartime deep cover NKVD agent who spoke fluent German and who went behind German lines and did dastardly sabotage and assassination, called Strelitz I think, and he came out top of the pole. Guess what? Guess who spoke fluent German and spent part of his KGB service, actually in a pretty undistinguished manner, Mm. in Dresden. He did. And he fit the bill. I mean, actually, he's just a creature created by Boris Berezovsky, as far as I can see mm, in his yeah. political ascendancy, but in um, the Yeltsin clan. The religion question. Well, oh, yeah, the religion one. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the relationship, I mean, as I said, that um, uh, spreading orthodoxy and spreading uh, Protestantism or Catholicism in the case of Latin America and other parts of the world has been very bound up with imperialism. Um, that it's propagating the faith and uh, America, for that matter. There's a very good book I read a couple of years ago, which is called um, The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, or probably the other way round. which is about, um, the his- uh, some of it was about the history of American missionary activity okay. in China. There are about 90,000 missionaries there. Wow. And in fact, these are the people who confidently predicted that China would become a democracy and that it would be a Christian one. Mm. It wasn't so fanciful as you think, because, of course, Chiang Kai-shek and his wife are Methodists. Mm. But, uh, but I think, no, imperialism and uh, um, you know, introducing Christianity to the heathen, as it were, is very much bound up with imperialism, um, with different views on how to treat the heathen, in which the Catholics actually came out quite well. <laughs> <laughs> Okay.
0: Uh, there's a question at the back. Can we go um, over the back there. Yeah. Hold on, lady at the back there, please. I'm just going to pick up two or three. I will pick you up. Um, <coughs> there's another lady over here. Who's got your hand up? Do we have another? Do we have another? Yeah. Two. One there, and I'll pick up one other question. We'll do do a threesome this time. Yeah. Uh, one, two. And anybody else wants to come in? Let me write them down. Um, I, are you coming in? Oh, you can ask a question, we don't mind, okay. We're very democratic uh, here, isn't it? Okay, why don't we get to the okay, first question? Yes, yes. Thank oh, you. What, 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 oh, what,
2: sorry, two microphones.
0: Yes, what do you think will be the impact of Brexit on the European Union? Uh, do you think it will lead to the EU devolving more power to member states, or do you think it will become more integrationist? And if it becomes more integrationists, Will there be more sort of exits uh, uh, from the European Union? Okay. One, two, where's two?
2: Um, thank you very much for the talk. Um, what advice would you give British policymakers in the Russian sphere or working, me, or working um, on the bilateral relationship with Russia in the context of Brexit negotiations over the next, as you say, eight months?
0: Just up your street, that question. Yeah, that's yeah. A rule. <laughs> really we'll the rule. And we take the last but, but no least, the chap over here. I nearly said wearing a Canadian shirt, but that's unfair. <laughs> uh, over to you, please. I, Thanks.
2: Um, very UK-centric question, or UK and imperial-centric question. Um, given that I have went to university with a Falkland Islander huh? who um, was... What? With a Falkland, Falkland Islander. Islander? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, who was extremely clear that his, he was from the Falkland Islands, he intends to remain living in the falkland islands he was british through and through and he also was very clear that he was determined if not keen to fight for the continued um, presence of the falkland islands as part of, the, of britain what what continued credence do you believe that the argument for self-determination still has in places like um, gibraltar falklands Diego Garcia um, problematic one and also particularly Northern Ireland given the the 6% that kept them um, from uh, as you mentioned from uh, leaving 2016 Uh, how far do you think that's still uh, a reasonable argument for Whitehall to continue to trot out um, to justify holding on to these places
0: thank you okay okay right would you want to start with one two Uh, or three no why not no we'll start with one okay the um, Brexit and the EU question.
1: Yeah, uh, well, obviously the uh, EU faces multiple challenges. In fact, I recommend you go and look at the chapter Empire of Virtue in my last book, um, Best of Times, Worst of Times, which is even my most Brexit-y friends like Simon Heffer would say that it uh, uh, does the business, as it were. You couldn't tell what my own view of it was at all. Um, I think that... Uh, we're in for a certain period of uh, disappointment, no disrespect to the lady who occupied this stage a couple of weeks ago, mm. I don't have much confidence in her ability to uh, na- navigate the future having knowing a bit about her record as German Defence Minister <laughs> um, and uh, the statement that she was um, you know she's going to have a geopolitical uh, commission. Well, good luck with that one in a world where the EU are basically herbivores in a world of carnivores. (laughs) uh, And we are in a world of carnivores. Um, But um, I guess that uh, the half, you know, the, the, the movement backwards from integration runs the risk, of course, that states start to spin off. And they could say, well, you know, if the British have got this deal, then why can't we have it? Or, mm. Which is one reason, of course, the EU's drawn such a heavy line in the sand about exactly. what we're going to get and not get, because you'd have everybody wanting, you know, if, if you assume Britain was only one third in the EU by the time of the referendum anyway, in terms of what it had signed up to, uh, you could have lots of people saying, well, let's be a third out, or two thirds out, or so, whatever. Um, on the other hand, the. are... Um, are other forces at work in the world so as I just mentioned earlier on that Trump wants to basically palm off the Middle East onto NATO us folks um, to cut the burden on the American taxpayer um, at which case um, there might be some arguments for the much maligned European argument uh, European army which nobody is allowed to write about in the British press at all it's a sort of banned subject and like many banned subjects um, and I could see a case where, for certain certain missions, certain functions, that that will probably uh, start to assume more shape than it has at present. Although, of course, we have an, a, 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 a total problem with the Germans, i.e., a Luftwaffe that refuses to fly, fly at night, and all sorts of other complications. Um, and uh, you know, that's a that's a big problem. Plus, of course, their dogged refusal to spend two percent on defence to meet the NATO threshold. So, uh, really, I'm not quite sure where the EU uh, is going in the next few years. I'm sure they're going to to formulate a very careful negotiating package for Mr Barnier with the British, and the clock will tick, and we'll probably see the capitulations of the sort we saw in the preceding three years, um, and U-turns, etc. Uh, but where, where the, in, the big, in the bigger sense it goes, mm. um, I can't say, and also... Um, there is the problem that there are um, uh, highly illiberal people already in power or about to be in power in parts of Europe, although, blessed be the news, the um, populist party in Norway just uh, left the government in Norway. So it's much more sort of ups and downs and snakes and ladders than some of the more Brexity ideological academics would like you to believe, you know, that it's an ineluctable wave Mm. Like a Hokusai wave, it isn't like that at all. I mean, just look at the recent Austrian elections. Mm. So it's all much more, but that was the subject of my first lecture. On the second question about the policy sphere, where's the lady who asked me that? The back way, there. Yeah. Hi. Uh, on on um, uh, policy, well, I don't, as I said, I think there's this, I mean, I asked some very distinguished um, uh, diplomat here before Christmas about, about that, and he said, oh, well, we just have to manage this. Well, that, of course, as I say, is sort of bureaucrat speech for doing nothing. And I just don't see, I think there's all sorts of things that, uh, you know, one has to do, really, to deal with Russia, like be much, recruit much more savvy people to handle communications and to deal with cyber, cyber attacks, etc., etc. particularly in the communications sphere. Um, I know NATO's got communications experts, our forces have got communications experts, but I doubt whether these people are much good. Uh, otherwise, they'd be working in PR or the advertising industry. So, much more <laughs> of that. Um, uh, and actually, I think partly what I've actually just been talking about for 50 minutes. Um, to try and introduce a bit of sort of human sympathy and a bit of reality into all of this, you know, that this is not some sort of bunch of Martians out there. I mean, God knows we don't want to go back to the 1950s Cold War with they like sort of invading Martians or something. We need to just find some human commonalities mm. with the people. And as I began, as I stressed, the way the press writes, you'd imagine every Russian in Britain as a bloody oligarch. Mm.
0: Mm.
1: I mean... You can stand at a bus stop, as I did once, and talk to a Russian woman. She was a cleaner, not an oligarch. I mean, we should show a bit more, you know, humanity to people, rather than just inflicting sort of Certainly. stereotypes on them, and, you know, I bet lots of Russian students who come to this place come from quite modest backgrounds, they're not all the sons and daughters of Sergei Lavrov, and so uh, an ability to communicate is one thing and maybe also for the media to get a bit tired of writing about bloody spies and write about something more interesting. But then that's a generic problem with the media. Uh, what was the last question? Uh, the Falkland overseas Island Brits. January. Well, much as I'd like to weep for the Cayman Islanders or <laughs> people in some other tax haven, I take your point seriously about, uh, about the Falkland Islanders and uh, other... Uh, insular populations like Gibraltarians and there is a there is a, and what was the other one? Gibraltar was it? Yeah, it was. Is there another one? Uh, I think there was another oh, one yeah. he mentioned. Oh, Diego Garcia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, these are terribly specific cases and um, I don't think you can lay down a general general rule to deal with all of them at once. I mean, they need to be handled on a differential basis and uh, you know, what can I say? Um, nothing
0: I think on that word (laughs) uh, we shall end I firstly want to thank all of you for coming along this evening I also want to thank uh, our benefactors the Axon Johnson Foundation for supporting this a very fine Swedish foundation Um, I'd like to thank many of our friends who are here in the audience tonight two of I've already named and Thank you again for all the support you've given to ideas. But above all, I'd like to say a very great thank you to Michael, who taught at the LSE. I, 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 th- I wish you would come back and do it again, more often, more frequently, because that was one of the most honest, straightforward, clear, great lectures I've heard here on this stage, and I've heard many. So, Michael Burley, thank you so much for being here tonight with us. Michael Burley.